Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This week, I revisited one of the most excellent and most important films I've ever watched. Plus, I'm Jeff Braun. I took a second trip to the theater to rewatch one of the year's biggest movies and rewatched a classic war movie that hit a big milestone this summer. Plus, season three of a really cool show on global TV wrapped up this week. I'll review Departure. We all respect the game. Twist at the twist at the twist. The dog is ready. Go. New season of Survivor, Wednesday, September 27th on CBS. And on Global. And let's talk Survivor because we got some news about it this week. I guess um, the stuff we already knew was that, again, since uh, COVID started, it's going to follow the same format of being a 26-day game this season instead of 39 for Survivor 45. 18 contestants split into three tribes. Um, Bruce from last season, he was a guy that had to be medically evacuated like two minutes into the season. He'll be back. It's uh, only fair to give that guy another shot. I also noticed looking at the cast list that there are two guys named Brandon, so don't know why they do stuff like that. That kind of drives me nuts. It will only add to my confusion where it takes me, you know, 75% of the season to learn the names of everybody. But the biggest uh, difference we're going to see on Survivor this year is that they will be 90-minute episodes because of the ongoing writer and actor strikes in Hollywood that uh, a lot of new shows just won't be coming back anytime soon. So with the ones they are bringing back, they're going to extend them 90-minute episodes of Survivor and along with 90 minutes of The Amazing Race on the same night, right, Brett? So uh, that's a three-hour, a whole full primetime block right there with your two reality shows. Yeah, that's right. 90 minutes of Survivor, 90 minutes of The Amazing Race. So a couple of things on this. First of all, getting more of your favorite shows is not, not necessarily a bad thing, but I often find, particularly with Survivor, yep. that when it ends up being... A two-hour, which is often just a back-to-back. Like, they'll just do... It's two yeah. episodes at once. But often, it'll be like, ugh, there's two episodes or it's two hours. Because <laughs> Survivor's fun, but sometimes I don't feel like watching more than an hour. It's been on for... This will be its 45th season, so we know the formula. Yep. So whenever they do an extended episode, sometimes it just feels like it's a little too long. And- I don't know. Unlike other shows, like, say, Ahsoka or Only Murders in the Building, current shows that I really like, I usually don't get to them until they're on Tuesday nights. I usually don't get to them until Saturday or Sunday when I have time on the weekend. And you can't do that with Survivor just for the because of the spoilerness of it all. If you find out who got booted out before you watch it, it's almost like sports. Like, why would I watch the game if I know who's going to win? So yeah. for, I find that with Survivor. It's like, if I know who's going home. I probably won't want to watch it. Now, I'm thinking back on it, I can only remember one time in, what is it, 23 years of Survivor where someone spoiled who got booted for me. Mm. So that was pretty impressive. And that was in the second season of Survivor when I was very upset about it because it was such a big deal, certainly in the early going. There have been other times where I've seen, I haven't hit play yet and it's near the end and I accidentally see which tribe is at tribal council. So then it's like, oh, I know who's going to... I got to, you know, I know at least what tribe will be there and who might get kicked off. So there's that sometimes. But yeah, uh, I agree, though. 90 minutes and survivors not shy, though. They've got lots of episodes that have got just a lot of filler in there. If the people aren't doing, you know, interesting things, they just like, well, we got to kill the time somehow. And now if they're just going to have more of that, that might get a little bit dry. I also sometimes I speed watch through it sometimes where I'll fast forward through the challenges. And then I also through the challenges. Yeah. 
For some reason, that is my least favorite part, is the challenges. Oh, gosh. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Yeah. That's like, I'd be the guy watching curling, complaining that they never show the leads throwing their rocks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, And then I'll also fast forward through tribal council sometimes, just like plus 30 seconds at a time, waiting to see if, if anyone's getting all charged up about something. Then I'll watch it, of course. But sometimes I find that can be a little fillerish too. And apparently they can shoot those things for up to two or three hours at sometimes and distill it down to 10 minutes. So okay. there's might be maybe that's the kind of filler we'll be getting. Who knows? We'll, we'll see. The Amazing Race, on the other hand, there are times where I wish the episodes were longer. And there's <clears throat> yeah. the odd occasion where... They've done this where I'll, I'll finish watching it and then realize there's another one because they aired back-to-back episodes and I get all excited about it because I some I would sometimes like to see a little bit more to see the sometimes because it's a race. They're just racing from scene to scene. Even those moments where they're just changing into whatever outfit or whatever contraption they have to get to. Sometimes it's just, all right, we're here. And now they're standing on the ledge, <laughs> getting ready to bungee jump yeah. into a, into a gorge. So that might be a bit more fun. So I'm either way, that's a solid Wednesday night for CBS. And of course, global has survivor on hand, but this isn't the only network doing stuff like this, like dancing with the stars. I remember being kind of shocked that, Disney Plus swallowed that up in from ABC in an attempt to get more subscribers to Disney Plus, but they've since kicked that back to ABC. There's potential for another sort of emergency season of Big Brother because during the last writer's strike, the network did rush a special spring season onto the schedule to help fill those gaps. I'm just looking at an Entertainment Weekly breakdown of this here and uh, at EW.com, and there's also the chance of another celebrity edition of the show. And a reminder that CBS is now getting ready to debut Yellowstone oh, yeah. on network television. That starts mm-hmm. on September 17th on CBS and on Global here in Canada. That'll be exciting for those who don't have, um, well, I guess it was on Prime Video at first in Canada and then on the latest season on Paramount Plus. And so, yeah, that'll be, people will watch that because people like that show. And I'm sure a lot of people who haven't seen it or must be curious about it. Did they, uh, has Prime since lost all of Yellowstone? I don't, I think the first four seasons are still there or three seasons, whatever it was. I think they're still there. I haven't checked because I just got, it was like, oh. They don't have this new season. I'm out. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> so you haven't. Oh, they. Yeah, they do still have. There you go. Looks like they've got season Yellowstone season one, two, three, four, and then it's a season five on a free trial and all the other stuff like uh, 1923. That's the one with Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren. And then there was 1883. Is that the one with Sam Elliott? Sure. Okay. Yeah. There's something here called Yellowstone Romance. I don't know if that's linked. Oh, <laughs> I think <laughs> that oh, there's might also just be Prime also has something called Bears at a National Park meeting or something like that. <laughs> there's also a Murder at Yellowstone City. I think they just have a lot of things uh, called Yellowstone that are not linked. That's funny. It's curious to see what other um, networks and channels might do to try and get over the hump of this strike or whatever. I sort of hope that some channels just start airing old movies that I like. That there's. I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but it seems I would say 
almost half the time, if I think of a movie, ooh, I'd like to watch that movie, and I subscribe to four streamers, and it's just not playing on anything. Yeah. And it's like, come on, where, why can't I watch this? And then some other crap movies playing on three of the four streamers <laughs> I subscribe to. So I don't know. I, I think they could maybe uh, hopefully hire someone uh, smart to curate a good movie lineup to get over it. I think that would do well. Yeah, that's actually a pretty good idea. And speaking of movies, a lot of movies, too, are going to be delayed. Productions will be delayed and guaranteed. Like shows like Andor apparently going to be pushed to 2025. And any show that, and there are so many of them now, because once upon a time, visual effects on TV, as a as a member of the audience, you go, eh, that looks all right for TV. Yeah. Because your expectation when going to see a movie was that the effects would be as good as possible. And TV, we're like, well, it's lower budget, blah, blah, blah. But now on at least the bigger productions, there would be no excuse for Rings of Power. Say what you will about the quality of the show. But it, we both agreed that it looked stellar yes and there would be no they they could not put out that show until the vfx were perfect same for hbo's house of the dragon same thing like there's you're if you're going to put dragons on tv you got to spend the money yeah especially if you know because they got a track record already of pretty good looking dragons on the game of thrones so yeah so it might be a while before we see a lot of our uh, favorite shows again so in the meantime We've got Survivor coming back, and that debuts once again, September 27th, and then The Amazing Race also on the 27th. I also just want to, you know what, let's press pause here because, uh, speaking of global TV, I wrapped up the third season for what's been a pretty cool series so far. Details in a moment. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. The third season wrapped this week on Global TV for Departure, a show about transportation investigators, the main one played by Archie Punjabi, who solves mysteries that surround big crashes and related catastrophes. And season one was about a plane crash. Season two was about a train crash. And season three takes us to the sea. Storm shifted, headed straight our way. Monday on Global. All of a sudden, there's this large bang. Like an explosion. Accusations. I know who did this. I know who sank that ferry. This ship's going down! The trail. We've got a problem. Conspiracy. She's leading passengers deeper into the ship. Emmy Award winner Eric McCormick. All ears are signs of life, people. And Emmy Award winner Archie Panjabi. Something is nodding up here. No! Departure. New season Monday at 7 on Global. Also available on Stack TV. So season one debuted in the summer of 2020. Season two aired last year. I finally got around to watching season two just earlier this summer so I could be ready for season three. So it's about a ship carrying over 300 people and it sinks and the survivors, if any, must be found. But something more sinister lurks under the waters, something bigger than just a ship accident. So will the team responsible for rescuing passengers stay afloat in their mission or drown among the dangerous games at play. The show's other primary recognizable face is Eric McCormack, who's memorable, of course, from Will and & Grace, and more recently a sci-fi show called Travelers. Season 3, it had a really solid mystery, because, as a good mystery show will do, it will lead you down one path, then you'll think, oh, that's what happened, and then it'll, it'll call an audible, and it'll lead you down a different path, and you think you've got it figured out. And when they do finally relieve it, reveal it, I'll tell you... Never, never would I have thought 
that's where they were going. So it was cool. I was pleased with the show overall. And the show pretty much has everything. Mystery, conspiracy, murder, and beauty. It's set in Newfoundland and Labrador, and it was shot in Newfoundland and Labrador. So that's pretty cool. I'm not sure where I would rank the seasons. I thought they were all fun. They're all short, six episodes each. So if you feel like giving them a shot, you can watch them on demand through your cable or on the Global TV app or through Stack TV. Not the best show I've ever seen, but a solid and entertaining show with a great cast, some cool cinematography, and some great mysteries, um, which were all three of them caught me by surprise. So highly recommend it. Departure on Global. And I went to the theater this week. I rewatched one of the biggest and longest movies of the year, Oppenheimer. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Detonator's charged. I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon, but I know the Nazis can't. Three, two, one. Oppenheimer. It's made nearly $900 million worldwide since opening at the end of July. And for a biopic about a scientist, that's pretty, pretty impressive. I really liked Oppenheimer the first time I saw it, the week it came out. And I think I like it even more after seeing it twice now. In case you were gone all summer, Oppenheimer is the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the man who spearheaded the Manhattan Project, which was the creation of the first nuclear bomb. The point was to end World War II, and the fear, which was very quickly realized afterward, was that it would lead to a nuclear arms race. And the movie examines the Manhattan Project, the political fallout for Oppenheimer and others involved, and his own conscience. It's directed by Christopher Nolan, and may just be his uh, crowning achievement. There's so much going on in this movie, like the amount of information that is being launched at us probably set some kind of a record. It's just a relentless flow. And frankly, there's no way to pick it all up even after seeing it twice. But it's so well written and the actors are so up to the task that even if you aren't picking up all the details, you are absolutely locked into the story. I mean, it's about nuclear physics and they make it make sense without dumbing it down. And that's just uh, a wonderful thing to do. It's, it's unbelievable, actually. This time around, I was struck by a couple of things. Uh, one being the score by Ludwig Göransson. It sounds like a lot of Nolan scores that either this Gorenson or Hans Zimmer have done in the past. Kind of this unrelenting, pulsing, energetic dirge. Great stuff there. Uh, the pacing and the artistic flair with the pacing or the editing uh, is just a phenomenal achievement. It's three hours long. It doesn't let up for a moment. It feels kind of self-propulsive. One scene just going into the next. Nolan's love of darting back and forth in time. A lot of these quick images that we see as we kind of peek into the mind of Oppenheimer. A lot of visual poetry on display with the way it's all cut together. I thought that was uh, very impressive on second viewing. And uh, the performance by the lead actor, Killian Murphy. I think he's going to win an Academy Award. I mean, he should if they get it right. Uh, he's just phenomenal in this movie. I went to see it again because my girlfriend had not yet seen it. She wanted to, and it took us this long to find a screening that started at a time that worked for us, and that's just the problem with a three-hour movie. They usually start around either at 6 or at 9, and one is too early and one is too late for a work night, so uh, we finally found a screening that started at 7.15 so we could go. She loved it, by the way, and even though she agreed, the amount of information we're expected to download was almost overwhelming. She found it gripping and thrilling, and she also agreed that the last hour maybe drags a bit after the 
the excitement of the first two hours. I gave Oppenheimer four coach cushions out of five when I first saw it, and I'm actually going to bump that up a notch to four and a half coach cushions out of five. The degree of difficulty became clearer on rewatch, and that this movie is even watchable, let alone as engrossing as it is, is something of a miracle. So Oppenheimer still in theaters, and if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend you uh, make that trip. It's good on the big screen. From four to four and a half couch cushions for Oppenheimer. And while we have 60 seconds here, I just want to quickly mention this. The song is called My Favorite Mutiny by a group called The Coup. It is the theme song for Winning Time, the rise of the Los Angeles Lakers dynasty. It's on HBO, and its second season finale airs this Sunday. You can catch up on the first season and the second season on Crave. And, uh, man, I just love this show so much. The first season was great. The second season has been excellent. The cast, led by John C. Riley as Jerry Buss, the owner of the Los Angeles Lakers. It takes us to the beginning of the Showtime era. They can't call it Showtime, though. That's why it's called Winning Time, because HBO has a rival network named Showtime. But it's just great TV. You don't have to be a sports fan. You don't have to know the history of the Lakers or the Boston Celtics. It's just good TV. Looks like the third season might be in jeopardy because of the ongoing strikes. Hopefully we get more in the meantime. The season two finale this Sunday on HBO. Up next, we're going to tell you about the classic and important movies we watched this week. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. And I think it's pretty safe to say that of the two of us, the one who watches more serious fare is Jeff. Not to suggest Jeff Braun does not like escapist entertainment or superheroes or silly comedies, but he also does watch all the war movies that I generally don't go out of my way to watch. Not because I don't like them. I just, when I want to watch a movie, it's often I'll just think, well, it's serious, important film or something with the cape. So I, I often lean towards the cape. But this week, given the date that just passed, September 11th, I thought to revisit a film that came out back in 2006, if you can believe that already. Uh, it, one of the best movies I've ever seen. It was a movie that was overlooked at the loss, at the Oscars, I think, just because it came out too soon for that kind of stuff. I don't know. But uh, director Paul Greengrass made a masterpiece. It is called United 93. Sir, CNN's reporting a light civil aircraft has just hit the oh, World Trade Center. Man, that's a lot of smoke. We got another one. We got another hijack? United 175 dropped his transponder off. We got a possible hijack. Weapons. Scramble those fighters in over Manhattan. Copy that. Well, we've reached our cruising altitude of 35,000 feet, and I'm going to turn the fasten seatbelt sign off. You are safe to move about the cabin. Descending rapid. This aircraft is going down, I'm telling you right now. Here's one with juice for you. No, there he is. There he is right there. We're right up the Hudson River. This is a hijack. He's going to hit this guy. Two aircraft hit the World Trade Center. Just left north, the weather was beautiful. There it goes! We have a plane headed toward the Capitol. What the hell is wrong out there? May we engage, sir. I am on a plane that has been hijacked. Yes, sir. I got F-16s turning and burning towards Washington. Two planes just hit the World Trade Center. Nobody's going to help us. We have to do something right now. Arnold, I need rules of engagement. Do we shoot this flight down? We have to do it now, because we know what happens if we just sit here and do nothing. 
And I should rephrase as it pertains to the Oscars. It wasn't totally overlooked. I meant overlooked as a Best Picture nominee, but it wasn't nominated for Best Achievement in Directing for Paul Greengrass and Best Achievement in Editing as well. So United 93 tells the story of that fourth aircraft that failed to reach its target because the passengers fought back and tried to reclaim the plane before it went down in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And it's not just about that event. That's the primary event. But we it shows us the whole, the whole day kind of unfold. It's set basically in real time. It feels more like a docudrama, to be quite frank. And in the first six minutes of the movie... Paul Greengrass does a pretty spectacular job at showing you all of the pieces that comprise the puzzle, the intricate dance that is air travel, especially in a country as busy as the United States of America, from the pilots to the flight attendants to the baggage crew to the on-site flight ops to the FAA National Operations Center to the the air traffic controllers scattered across the country to the military and of course the passengers. Within six minutes, you just get a real understanding, and I think part of what they were setting up there is to show you like if everything goes smoothly, then it'll be great. But if something happens, maybe not so great. And Paul Greengrass. And a few years ago in an interview, he talked about all those systems working together. I mean, I remember being absolutely drawn to United 93 and the struggle on the plane. And so then it was a question of situating that struggle in its correct context, which was all these systems. And the thin tissue of rationality that, you know, by which we live our lives and how easy it is to tear it and what happens when we do and how swiftly the the systems crash. And one of the things that I really like about this movie is there's very little music used throughout the film uh, so it doesn't try to over-dramatize anything and just the way that we start to learn because we're essentially a passenger not just on the aircraft but with everyone else like we're just sort of looking in but it's so immersive the camera work is so immersive that you feel like you're right there in the room and you're feeling this chaos because you know the first hint that maybe there's a hijacking is in an air traffic control room and they don't know what's going on they're trying to figure it out is it a hijack and eventually it goes off radar and then something hit the world trade center and at for the first reports were that it was a light aircraft no one knew was it a commercial aircraft and it wasn't until the second plane hit the other tower where everyone started to realize what that something was wrong here, that something seriously bad was happening. And one of the cool things as well that he does in this movie that I forgot about until I started reading up on it again, he uses a whole bunch of real people in this movie. All the people were all air traffic controllers who'd been there on the day. You know, we'd brought over to play that part. The idea was that, you know, you'd sort of, you have a few actors in amongst professionals and if you get that balance right, and if you're very, very lucky, the sort of actors stop acting and the non-actors start acting and you sort of get this beautiful 
sense of reality. Even the guy who was the at the the head of the the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration's national operations, he was the national operations manager. I didn't know this. He was the real guy. His name is Ben Sliney. I thought he was an actor because he's so great on camera. But no, it was the real guy. And it was his first day in that job, if you can believe that. Imagine of all the days to start that job, September 11th, 2001. But then once the passengers start to learn what's happening, because they, the hijacking finally takes place on United 93, and you know they... Some of them had cell phones, but there was no such thing I, in 2001, I don't think, as internet on your cell phone. I can't remember when Blackberries became a thing. It doesn't matter. There, So they all start calling home on the air phones, and that's when they start to learn that the towers have been hit, and they eventually figure out that this plane is not going to land, and they have to do something to save themselves and to prevent further death and destruction. And from there, the the harrowing attempt, the brave attempt to take the plane back. It's just incredible. The final moments of this film uh, are maybe the most intense. I'm not going to say that I watch ever, but every time I watch it, and I've seen this movie, I bet you, 10 times now. And every time I watch it, it just makes me weep. And I watched it twice. I watched it on Friday this past weekend, and then I watched it again on Monday. And it just gets me every time. So I really do highly recommend this film. It's a tough movie, but it's really one of the most important movies I've ever watched. And if you want to watch it, it's available on Tubi. That's a streaming service, T-U-B-I. And because I, I, I couldn't find it anywhere. I'm like, Geez, I own it on DVD, so I was prepared to put in my DVD and watch it there. But I thought, somebody's got to have this. So I just held up my Shaw Blue Curve and held it into the microphone and, and said, United 93. And it popped up with two options. One was digital rent for five bucks or Tubi, which is it's a free app. And it's ad-supported, but the ads are really not that intrusive. I think there were four ad breaks in the whole movie. It's about an hour and 45 minutes. The first two ad breaks were 60 seconds each, and then I think the next two were 30 seconds each. So that's nothing. That's not bad at all. And the, the quality was great. So highly recommended. If you haven't seen United 93, check it out. And up next, Jeff is going to tell you about a classic and important film that he revisited this week as it marks a rather big milestone. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. I just have three quick, more quick notes about United 93. The first one, not to be mistaken with another movie called Flight 93. That was a made-for-TV movie on A&E, I believe, and it sucks. So I don't recommend that. United 93 is the theatrical release. Second thing, I referenced how it maybe came out too soon, and uh, its box office might be reflective of that. It made $31 million domestic, $76 million total. And that's not bad on a $15 million budget, but I just feel like if this movie had come out a few years later, maybe it would have been seen by more people. Like, I'm not sad that it didn't make a lot of money. I'm just, I want more people to see this movie. And the third thing that I forgot to point out as well, the whole docudrama thing, I found it interesting that the way that he he didn't portray the attackers as evil men. Everybody, like, he didn't portray anybody as anything other than just being in that situation. 
And maybe some people will like that. Some people might not like that. I don't know. Maybe they want them to be portrayed as bad guys. But anyway, just wanted to throw those extra thoughts out there. Now, Jeff, what did you watch this weekend? It's been 25 years, Brett, since Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks took us back to World War II with Saving Private Ryan. Part of me thinks the kid's right. What's he done to deserve this? He wants to stay here, fine. Let's leave him and go home. Yeah. But another part of me thinks, what if by some miracle we stay and actually make it out of here? Someday we might look back on this and decide that saving Private Ryan was the one decent thing we were able to pull out of this whole god-awful mess. The anniversary of Saving Private Ryan was actually in July, but I missed it then. I rewatched it this past week. It is on Paramount Plus, and I own the DVD, so I watched it in standard definition. But for a 25-year-old movie that's very grainy in the first place, that was okay. Saving Private Ryan came out in 98 and frankly changed war movies forever. It also changed a lot of our perceptions about war and the people who fought in the big one. The actual veterans were getting on in years, of course, and like Schindler's List a few years before it, Spielberg thought it might be a smart idea to pay homage to the people affected by the war and get some of the stories of the survivors out there while they could still share those stories. So Saving Private Ryan, the movie, led to Band of Brothers, the TV show, and together they gave voice to all these old veterans who felt that their experience had not really been represented truthfully on screen before. Many had also simply never talked about the war to anyone who wasn't in it. The trauma was very real, and this kind of let those guys open up and maybe relieve some of the burden they'd been carrying for decades. So the movie came at us with a historical aspect and of course a fictional World War II adventure, the kind of story they've done a thousand times, but never with this much detail or attempt at reality. Um, and it's an army unit on a mission. That's what most war movies are about, and so Saving Private Ryan, namely Tom Hanks as Captain Miller, leads his unit of seven guys through Nazi-occupied France to save Private Ryan. Ryan was a paratrooper who, like most of the paratroopers, was misdropped on the eve of D-Day and lost his, just lost in a sea of soldiers scattered across the countryside. Ryan had a ticket home because all of his brothers had been killed in action and the army decided that the Ryan family shouldn't be entirely decimated if they could help it. One of the brilliant things about the story, though, is that Hanks and his company are not thrilled with their mission. Where's the sense in risking the lives of the eight of us to save one guy is something that Edward Burns asks as they march along. And the movie's very episodic. Uh, the seems kind of show after repeat viewings over a quarter century in that regard, but the uh, episodes are pretty good. I really like the scenes near the beginning where they come across Paul Giamatti and his unit, and then Ted Danson and his unit. There are a lot of big names that took very small roles in this film. I think A, to be in a high-profile war movie, and B, to be in a high-profile war movie directed by Steven Spielberg. Thrilled to get a small part was a then-struggling actor by the name of Young Vinegar Diesel. Vin Diesel for short. I don't know if it's Vinegar. Imagine if it were. Um, <laughs> this is where we first saw him, though, as a heroic Caparzo who, while trying to do something very good, really does something stupid and gets himself killed. Spoilers for Saving Private Ryan. The rest of the unit filled out by guys who many of, or a couple of whom we kind of knew, but all of whom became quite a bit more famous afterwards, like Giovanni Ribisi, Barry Pepper, Jeremy Davies, and Adam Goldberg. And then, uh, as we heard in the clip at the beginning of the segment there, Tom Sizemore, who was already Tom Sizemore, but this is maybe his best performance. Uh, I sort of think he should have got a supporting actor nomination for Saving Private Ryan. There are other small roles filled by Dennis Farina, Nathan Fillion, a slew of other recognized 
recognizable faces. I mean, even one of my friend's ex-husband is in this movie for 20 seconds. And what? It, yeah. Okay. She married an actor, and he was in Saving Private Ryan. He's got one line with Tom Hanks in the first five minutes. Oh, neat. Yeah. And I always forget about it until the scene comes up. I was like, whoa, I know that guy. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, there's Private Ryan, who's played by Matt Damon, and he was... Not famous when he was cast by Spielberg, but he was a star by the time the movie came out because of Goodwill Hunting coming out the year before. So that was a weirdly very fortuitous piece of casting. But because we get to meet, uh, before we get to meet any of these guys properly, the movie does begin with this 25 minute set piece that is the D Day invasion on the beaches of Normandy. And it's still phenomenal all these years later. Time has been kind to that, sometimes with a, a big action scene. Years later, is like, oh, that's not really as impressive as it used to be. But it's among the most brutal combat footage uh, ever made, certainly at this scale. You really wonder how anyone survived it and how those that did could carry on with their lives after going through something like that. It's, it's just staggering. The one thing that always strikes me is how instant the death is for many of these soldiers. Um, you know, we've been conditioned by movies for decades for uh, war deaths to be long, drawn-out affairs and the actors to really ham it up and chew the scenery as they're slowly dying. But in Saving Private Ryan, when a bullet hits someone in the head, they just instantly collapse in a very uncinematic manner, and it really hits you. It's just so terribly grim. So the first half hour is just an epic piece of filmmaking that has stood the test of time. The rest of the movie, great too. Not without flaws, but they're pretty minor. I'll admit I fast-forwarded through... Um, Adam Goldberg's death at the end. His was not the quick death. He got the slow death, and he's in this hand-to-hand -hand combat with a German while Jeremy Davies is having a nervous breakdown in the stairwell nearby, his fear freezing him to the point that he couldn't help his friend. It's well done, very effective, very powerful, and uh, easily the hardest thing to watch in a movie that's got a lot of hard things to watch, and I just didn't want to put myself through it this week. I'm glad it's there, though, because I would think there were quite a few guys in that scenario that were simply too scared to be effective soldiers when a push comes to to shove. It's not the sort of thing you want to think about, but it had to have happened. Banner Brothers actually dedicated a, a whole episode to that. Anyways, great stuff from Spielberg with Saving Private Ryan. Maybe his biggest movie as far as scale goes, and that's saying something as he usually goes big anyways. So, Saving Private Ryan holding up well 25 years after first being released. I'm Brad, he's Jeff, we are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother. <laughs>